0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier Early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This is Global Tel Link. You have a prepaid call from Jarvis Masters. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tel Link.
0: Hello? Hi Jarvis, this is Dan Harris.
1: Hey, how are you doing? Are you I'm
0: doing great. Thank you for doing this.
1: No, no problem.
0: I really appreciate it. No problem. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, so today uh, we have a truly incredible episode about how to meditate in hell. You're going to meet a man named Jarvis J. Masters, who I interviewed from his cell on death row at San Quentin Prison in California. Any of us who meditate with some regularity do our best to apply the practice to life's inevitable ups and downs, but this person has been applying meditation and Buddhism generally in some truly extreme circumstances. You're going to hear Jarvis tell his own story, but let me give you a little taste here at the jump. Jarvis had an extremely difficult upbringing, which was marred by both poverty and abuse. He bounced around among foster homes before landing in San Quentin prison. At the age of 19, he was sentenced to 20 years for armed robbery, for which he admitted his guilt and served his time. Four years into his sentence, a prison guard at San Quentin was murdered. Jarvis was accused of sharpening the weapon that was allegedly used by another inmate to kill the guard. Jarvis has maintained his innocence from the start, but he was found guilty and sentenced to death back in 1990. The two individuals who were also convicted in this murder, the man who ordered the killing and the man who committed the stabbing, both received lesser sentences of life without parole. Again, Jarvis was sentenced to death. According to a journalist named David Sheff, who wrote a whole book about Jarvis's case called The Buddhist on Death Row, Jarvis's conviction was marred by prosecutorial misconduct, false testimony, and questionable evidence. Even one of the sons of the murdered guard has spoken out in Jarvis's defense, saying, and I'm quoting here, that justice for Jarvis is also justice for my father. Jarvis has now spent more than three decades on death row, including more than two decades in solitary confinement, which is incredible if you think about it. Shortly after he received his death sentence, Jarvis became interested in Buddhism, and he started developing a pretty rigorous practice under the tutelage of a Tibetan teacher, a lama, named Chagdud Tolku Rinpoche. Jarvis has now written and published two books about his life. The first is called Finding Freedom, and the second is called That Bird Has My Wings. Both feature forewords uh, by Jarvis's friend, the renowned meditation teacher Pema Chodron, who's also been on this show. And his second book, That Bird Has My Wings, was endorsed not only by the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, but also by Oprah Winfrey, who selected the book for her famous book club just last year. Jarvis's current appeal sits before a federal judge as we speak. A decision on his future could be reached any day. Just to say in this interview, Jarvis does not talk much about his conviction and death sentence and the current situation in his case, since his appeal is currently pending, which is why I'm going into some detail right now. Here, though, is what we do talk about. We talk about his childhood, his road to prison, how he unlearned traditional and harmful aspects of masculinity with the help of a person named Melody Irmachild. You'll hear him reference Melody, who was an investigator assigned to his case and then became his good friend. How he began to write and the impact that had on him and his standing with his fellow inmates. How he meditates in an extremely noisy place. The details of his meditation practice, his off-the-cushion practice of engaged Buddhism with his fellow inmates. How he prepares for the possibility of release, and for the possibility of execution, and how he defines freedom. Heads up, there are frank discussions here of both suicide and domestic violence. Also, just a little peek behind the scenes, because Jarvis was recording this interview from prison, we had to contend with constant interruptions, including pre-recorded messages telling us that our call was being monitored, and also a phone line that automatically cuts off every 15 minutes. In real life, we conducted this interview over the course of about seven or eight different phone calls spread out across two and a half hours. We have edited the conversation down and removed most of the interruptions. However, as you will hear, we've also left a few of them in. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's slash happier Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre The good folks from Tidy Care Alert sent us some kitty litter in the mail. That's not normally uh, the kind of thing you want to get in the mail. But uh, when you have four cats, it's actually a very exciting development. So we've been using Tidy Care Alert, and our cats seem to be very happy. They're pooping away very happily. Uh, Tidy Care Alert has long-lasting ammonia control, so your house won't smell like you have cats. It's low dust and lightweight, and it's uh, from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one cat or you're a crazy person like me and my wife and our son, and you have four cats, they make it easy to
2: track.
1: Tidy Care Alert. This is
2: Global Tell Link. You have a prepaid call from
1: Jarvis Masters,
2: an inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California.
0: Jarvis J. Masters, welcome to the 10% Happier Podcast.
1: Glad to be there. Glad to be able to speak with you and others.
0: I'm glad as well. I wonder if we could start with you just giving me a brief description of where you're at right now, what do you, when you look around, what do you see? Paint a picture of your surroundings if you're up for it.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, the majority of people who are condemned is in a section called East Block, and it has two sides. It has a yard side, and it has a base side. And both sides has five tiers. I'm on the first tier, and across from me, directly across from me is a window that, you know, I used to be able to stay out of, but now it's just got so dirty that I don't don't even pay attention and looking. But, yeah, in the whole tier, maybe 50 people per tier, and, and everyone on the tier is condemned. Everyone in this building is on death row. It's a death row building. So you got at least 500 people in here.
0: Are you sitting at a bank of telephones, or do you have a private room that you can talk to us from?
1: You know, what they do is they have this phone on wheels type of thing. And they open your tray slot, and they hand you a phone, and the cord's long enough for you to sit with, and you stick your arms out the tray slot to to, uh, dial the numbers. And here I am, I'm sitting on my bunk, right across from me is the wall, and it's only about four feet. I know if I stand up, I can put my hands on both sides of the wall very easily, and I'm here talking to you.
0: Well, I'm grateful that you're talking to me. I am fascinated. Are you in solitary confinement, or are you allowed out of your cell?
1: You know what? I was in solitary confinement for 23 years until they moved me into the general population of Condemn Road. Being in the general population of condemned Road has nothing to do with the general population of San Quentin. We are very, very isolated from the general population. So when I got out of isolation confinement after 22 years, there was this wide open, deep breath that I was able to take. And we allow certain things more than, you know, we allow CDs and more exercise, yard time, um, more opportunities to go to commissary, just very few things. But for me, it's wide open, you know, because I knew what it felt like to be very in solitary confinement. So to me, it feels wide open. So that's that's pretty much it.
0: I appreciate you painting the picture for us. 22 years in solitary confinement. I'm not an expert in solitary. I've done some reporting on it, however, and I know that the studies show it is extremely detrimental to mental health to be isolated in that way. How did you keep it together? How did you stay sane for 22 years?
1: There is no one real answer to that. At every point in my life where I felt really, really depressed, well, not depressed, but like, you know, how, long, how much more of this I can take, something came up, whether it was learning how to meditate, whether it was learning how to write, whether it was getting visits. Every part of my staying there, something came up that allowed me to just run on that, you know. Meditation, becoming a Buddhist was one thing that helped me out. Fighting for my life in the courts kind of like made time uh, go by really, really fast. But I think more so than anything else, it was just learning how to meditate. And those years did go fast and they did go very, very slow. But it was just trying to find my own space, which was not hard to do because you had a 9 by 4 sale. But, you know, what are you going to do in that 9 by 4 sale? What books are you going to read? What are you going to look forward to? How are you going to do that? And I was able to do it. I don't know exactly how, but I just felt blessed. My life felt blessed. There's no doubt. I was watching people commit suicide over those 22 years in their cell. So... I saw what death looked like. I saw what people look like when they're dying. And every moment, I counted my blessings because, you know, I wasn't dying and I'm not dead. Those kinds of situations where they drag your neighbor out because he has a sheet wrapped around his neck and he's just laying there. The several times that I seen something like that, whether it was from my next door neighbor or two cells away or three cells away, I felt like my life does not deserve this. You know, my life is not going to do this. There's people outside prison who would not like me if I did something like that. And it just gave me a lot of strength. You know, it's almost like when you see a car accident and you're driving in your own car and you see how the car is demolished and you hope somewhere inside you that that never becomes you. And hopefully you drive a lot better. But that's what happened to me. It made me shift my life into a mode where I was really, really looking at the things that can happen if I don't check myself and it became real for me. So, you know, I was motivated to find my way away from the most dangerous things about being locked up in a cell for 23 hours a day. You know, when you ask me 22, 23 years, I mean, that blows me away. That's a long time. And, I honestly believe that it wasn't dead time, you know, it was time to give me a chance to meditate, it was time to give me a chance to write, it was an opportunity that gave me things to do, things to find out about who I was as a human being.
0: I want to talk a lot more about your meditation practice, your Buddhist practice, but if it's okay with you, I'd be interested in going all the way back to the beginning of your life and having you tell the story of how you ended up at San Quentin in the first place. Are you up for that?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I'm gonna just quote you from your book here. You said, and maybe this can provoke you to start telling the story, but here you say, I was taken from my mother at the age of five after watching my father almost beat her to death as I tried to keep my sisters safe. So this was not an easy entrance into the universe.
1: No. And after that, it was sneaking out at night or in the morning to find some food for my sisters, and we're doing it together at some point. Then they finally picked us up. Someone said that there were kids in a house that didn't have parents, and the parents had been gone for a long, long time. I don't know how that happened, who did that, but I ended up in a foster home. went to school, I was cleaned up, and one thing that really got me through those first years of being away from my parents, my mother and my father, was the fact that I was never without my foster mother telling me to pray for my mother. So I have that connection between having this foster mother who constantly asked me to pray for my mother and that my mother was sick, you know, and by her saying that was sick constantly, it made me realize everything I would experience at four or five years old was because of her sickness. And I just did well with my foster parents, and then at some point they became too old and I had to move out of the home into another foster home, which was a disaster for me. But you know what I think about all the time was that I was able to see what a real family looks like. You know, I was going to church, I was going to school, I was playing sports, I was doing all the things that just gave me a chance to grow, to live. Prior to that was just survival, you know. and. When I got to the second foster home, I got a chance to see what a bad foster home looked like. You know, we were stacked up on bunk beds, almost to the ceiling. We were in this little room. There was about five or six, maybe more foster kids. And I suffered a lot. I was beaten up a little bit. I was thrown downstairs. I almost got my hand cut off. So it was really, really bad. It was really bad. And I knew it was bad because I knew it was good but I couldn't take that place. So I ran away and I ended up in a place called McLaren Hall. And I wanted to stay. I wanted to be behind those gates. I wanted to be in a structure where you knew what you were getting in trouble for and you knew what you were not getting in trouble for. I knew that counselors cared and I knew that some really, really cared. And I wanted to stay there. I wanted to be a time when I ate, a time when I went to school, a time when I did that, because it was a structure that I needed. So after trying to manipulate my way to stay there longer and longer and longer, it faded away. Game was up, you know, and they ended up taking me to another foster home. And I ran away from that, did another foster home. Then at some point, they thought that I needed a group structure. So I went to boys' homes. And the last boys' home I went to was called the California Military Academy. And I still have the worstest memories there than any other place I've ever been in because it was just so violent. I mean, you got points for beating people up, and it was really, really bad, you know. So at some point, they were told on, and they had to kick everybody out because of the abuse, the physical abuse that they were doing to us as kids. And I think it was a suicide there, too, that allowed that people to start investigating. So they moved me back. For the first time, I got moved back to my natural family, and that was really cool being there. But I lost the structure. There was no structure there. Uh, I lost the ability to, you know, have to come in at night. You know, I was staying out all night. Then I started stealing things and all kinds of stuff. And I ended up getting in trouble and I ended up going to the youth authority. And I ended up running away from the youth authority. And I end up going back and just back and forth until I ran away from the youth authority. Me and another guy ran away from the youth authority and, This is when I was about 17, 16, 17. And I committed a lot of crimes and a lot of robberies just so I can have something to eat or stay, you know, somewhere. And finally, I got caught. And I was so tired, I didn't mind being caught. And they ended up sending me to San Quentin at the age of 18 years old. And that's how I got here. And I think that's how so many people get here, you know, so many other kids get here the same way. And interesting enough, there were so many people I knew when I got here, you know. It blew me away that, you know, we were all here and we all got along like we did when we were kids. I mean, real kids. I'm talking about 11, 12, 10, 9 years old. You know, these are the same guys. And for a lot of them, they wore the same scars, physical scars on their bodies and all over, you know. I had my own, but as I began to meditate and I began to look at this idea, I have a very good friend, probably one of the best friends I've ever had in my life, Melody Irmachild, and she was bringing me articles and books about masculinity, what is a man, because I I got caught up in trying to be this one kind of person that fit the script for San Quentin and any other prison. And she started tearing me down from that, tearing that off, and giving me books to read. And it was not Buddhist books. So these books was about masculinity. What is a man? How does he cause to treat himself in relationship to society? I always thought that there was an expectation of me to not feel pain, to not feel hurt. To not cry. I thought being a man was like keeping your word, uh, fighting all the time, not taking no shit from anybody. All those things. And those were the things that got me in trouble every time. I was afraid of my first name because my first name sounded like I was a whip. I mean, that felt far deep I was into it, you know. I had to have a game name. You know, I'd have some identification that related to being tough, being heavy, being violent, being don't fuck with me type of thing. But then I started reading about this stuff and I realized that people were able to understand me when I spoke without all of that machismo type of thing, you know. So I kind of like... I didn't back away from it. I started taking a look at it, you know. I started noticing things and seeing things from different perspectives and giving myself permission to cry if that's what it was. So all that stuff kind of dripped off me, you know. And I realized that people would like me more when I was myself. And I said, whoa, that's different, you know. You can call me Charles, you know. And... That allowed me to have some spiritual grounding. I felt the roots of my beginnings by getting rid of that stuff. Did it make me feel vulnerable in prison? Yes, it does. There's no way around it, you know, because you're not the same person everyone thinks you are now. Who are you now? So I had to get around that. I had to figure a way around that, you know, and what surprised the hell out of me was that telling our stories told another story about where I was, where I was going. It really, really opened me up to understand that everyone in San Quentin had a story to tell. And I knew I had my own. And what I did not know was how similar our stories were. I know we've been every place together, but I never knew how similar our stories were. And I never knew that the scars that they had on their backs comes from the same places I've been. So I ended up writing about it. And Melody helped me write that story. She made me feel honest or truthful to my own truth that I was able to do that. And after I wrote that story, I started writing a whole bunch of other stories. You know, I really got into it. And I found out that I'm a pretty good storyteller. So Finding Freedom was the first book I wrote. And then the second book was That Bird Has My Wings. And that's where they found me. That's where everyone found me, you know, sitting, writing. And they saw where I was going with this. And that was acceptable because it was real. So after I start reevaluating my life and what was going through this process of me going back and forth into these institutions was the fact that I needed that space to just sit and hear my thoughts. And that's when Melody and a few people start sending me more Buddhist books. And I was able to read those books pretty well because I knew that I had already begun the process of trying not to mask myself behind a lot of steel and armor and trying to be this rock-solid you know, convict in San Quentin State Prison. I had already begun to chip that away. So when I started reading the Buddhist materials, it came to me very easily that you don't have to be this tough guy how about sitting down and meditating or just sitting down and being quiet for a while?
0: Just on a practical level, Jarvis, how do you find quiet to meditate?
1: Oh, uh, good question. Learning how to be quiet was the first step that I had to learn how to do. Just knowing how to be quiet. I mean that was hard as hell to do, you know, just when you know, I'm eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old and you're talking about being quiet, that's what's very, very hard for me to do. So I end up having this connection to a Buddhist community up in North California, and they showed me how to meditate. I mean, there was just so many lessons that I got. One of the biggest ones was when they told me that my teacher, Rafferty Shandu Rafferty, loved to meditate at airports. And I thought that was really big stuff. I don't liken my stuff to him, but if he can meditate at a airport, then I don't have no excuse for learning how to try that same thing in prison. Eventually, I got to that point where I can hear all kinds of noise, but I can ground myself into my own space, my own silence. I don't try to ground out the noise. I know it exists. I know why people are yelling. I know why people are talking real loud. You know, I just, I'm not attached to the noise. Noise is not something that really breathes inside of me. At least this kind of noise, prisoner noise. I just got better and better at it. I knew the noise was not going nowhere. And I knew I didn't want to go where the noise go. So I just learned how to sit and meditate and find my own space. Not that, you know... I was meditating to the point where I wasn't being disturbed. I didn't feel irritated by it. I did, but at some point, I just kind of like dissolved that. And being in solitary confinement at that time, you get the help. You do get the help because you're isolated. You have 60 seconds remaining. Sometimes you can barely hear people. Sometimes you're behind one door, another door, and another door. A lot of times they would throw me into these quiet cells, filthy, quiet cells. I learned how to clean the cells up and then sit down and meditate. And that's how I survived. This is Global Challenge. You have a pre call from. Coming up, Jarvis
0: talks about his meditation practice. You'll hear him reference two Tibetan Buddhist practices, Red Tara practice and Vajrasattva practice. We also talk about his off-the-cushion practice of engaged Buddhism with his fellow inmates, And how he prepares for the possibility of release and for the possibility of execution. You can count on T Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T Mobile, Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. To accept this call,
1: say or dial 5 now.
0: Hello? Hi, Jarvis. Thanks for calling back. Really appreciate it. Sure. What does your daily meditation practice look like?
1: I used to meditate early in the mornings when I was uh, in solitary confinement. I don't do that now. I do everything mostly in the evenings because I'm not being called for a visit. I'm not being called because I have a legal call. I'm not being called because people up and down the tiers calling me. I have one or two you know, spiritual practices. One is a Rehattara practice um, and the other is a Vajrasattva practice. But I don't really go outside that space. I feel my own lane. I know a lot of Buddhists, man, and they can go really deep into the Buddhist practice and you know, all the various levels of Buddhism and they are well studied and all that. But for me, I've never been to those communities where Buddhism is studied more so as an academic approach to understanding the nature of your mind. Buddhism doesn't have that kind of structure in prison. There is no Sangha community where everyone comes together and they speak of what they have gotten or are trying to get to in their practice. That does not exist in San Quentin. I just want to make a difference. I don't want to be a monk, and I don't want to be anything that keeps me sitting down for too long. I'm more engaged. I'm more active. That's my true path.
0: So what kind of specific meditation do you do when you practice in the evenings?
1: Well, when I do my practice, I sit down, and I you know, I stay quiet for as long as possible, and then I would recite the red tar practice, and become more active, you know, my own mind around that concept until it kind of dissolves and I'm just sitting there and I'm with my mala and I'm just dedicating my practice to the benefit of other beings around me. And that's basically it. There are times where I do get serious, I mean more serious where I might meditate for four, five, six, seven, eight hours. That has not been the case of recent, but I think what I do is really, really preparing me for some other form of Buddhism that gets more deeply involved and active in communities outside prison. That's where my mind's at. I really want to go to the juvenile halls. I really want to go to the camps. I really want to go where people have never heard Buddhism as a concept. That's my whole thing, because I just want to reach people.
0: It sounds like you're describing a kind of Buddhism that is expressed through meditation yes but largely through being a productive constructive player in your environment
1: right they call it engaged buddhism i like that some people can sit for days and days i don't have a reason for sitting that long so i'm more of an engaged type of buddhist because i know in prison where those people are that you can make a difference My whole thing is trying to keep it real with the people you talk to, you know. And that's not just inmates, that's guards, too.
0: This idea of reaching people, you've come back to this repeatedly in this discussion, that that seems really important to you.
1: That is my practice. I mean, I meditate and I do my mantras and, you know, I do what's necessary for me to stay on track. But my whole thing is I feel like my Buddhist practice has given me the opportunity and the gift to speak directly to people for the benefit of helping them. And at the same time, I'm helping myself by doing it. But I kind of disguise it. You know, I don't go out saying I'm a Buddhist because I know it wouldn't work for me if I was them for me, I just try to find the places where it works.
0: What message generally works?
1: Being real with the person. There was uh, maybe five or six, seven years ago, somewhere around there, there was this guy, we have been in prison almost the same time. I may have been here maybe four or five years before him. And he just came up to me and he says, man, I'm done with this shit. And I told him I am too, but we just have to deal with it, you know. And he said, no, I'm serious, man. I I mean, I got my daughter who lives. She's just moved out here, and she knows I have no one, but she's sacrificing her whole life. And, you know, she's not going to move, man. I've been tell her to go on with her life, but she's not going to move. So I said, what are you going to do about it? He said, man, I'm done. And I looked at him, and I knew exactly what he meant, you know. And I knew he was serious, too, because there's just a certain eye contact you give to someone where, There's a moment of fear in his eyes, but it's the kind of fear that would just overcome itself after he does the act, In, in this case, after he kills himself. I just knew he was serious, you know. And then I started making up all these reasons for why, you know, this is not right and all this. And Because he's been here so long, he had every answer to everything I came up with. He had every answer. And in some ways, he made sense. So I felt like I was just repeating things that he knew I was going to say. It was as if he prepped himself before he started talking to me. So I got really pissed off at him because the first thing I thought was, why are you telling me this? You don't need to tell me this. You know, you can just do it. But then I said something. I said, you know, why don't you just wait? I said, just, just wait, man. Wait a week. Wait a day or something. If you're going to do it. You can wait a week. Just wait. And he gave me that. He gave me those three or four days that I asked him to wait. And he, when he came back, he was a whole different person. It was just so many things he needed to do. For example, he needed to write a letter to explain what he's doing. And he wrote this half-ass letter that didn't make no sense. So I got the letter. I said, now let me read this to you. Let me show you what you wrote. And I read it. And he didn't make no sense at all, none. And I said, this don't make no sense. I mean, what, what what is this, you know? And I read it to him again, and then I read it to him again, and it became more hilarious at one point. He said, did I actually say that? I said, yeah, you actually said it. It says right here. And I said, man, throw this shit away. This doesn't make sense. If you try to explain this to anybody, they just don't think you lost your mind maybe an hour later, he was on the yard and I seen him go over there to the toilet and he flushed it. I cried like a baby out there in that yard because I knew I didn't have the words, but I had his relationship that made the difference. I didn't have to have what the Buddha said that I could quote that wouldn't have made a difference. It was just cultivating relationships and being real with the person. You know, one of the things I said to him maybe a week later was that life is a lot more serious than what you write about, man. You know, that letter, it's a lot more serious. And that's when I felt like the Buddhist in me really spoke. I told him, you know, you don't create a ripple through your whole family. And he saw it. But I also know that he will never think about that anymore. So... That was very important to me, and I think about it all the day because I think, you know, it's all about cultivating relationships, you know, allowing yourself to be heard. And I don't drop Buddhism on everybody. If I can walk it, if I can talk it, if I can live with it, then I don't need to say it. And that's the beautiful thing about being a Buddhist. You don't need to claim it. You don't need to own it. It'll come to you. I find that happening to me almost every day. Do I get upset? Do I get angry? Yeah, a lot. A lot of times I do. But a part of, you know, my practice is understanding my own self-suffering and how that own self-suffering can become poison. And that poison can really, really tear you up. So understanding my own anger and seeing it as a gift to realize, to acknowledge helps me out a lot it's not a cure but it really helps me out
0: let me see if i can state some of that back to you because i think it's really important and beautiful actually that in some ways in your meditation practice as you become more familiar with the difficult parts of your mind your anger whatever else comes up for you that as you can be increasingly at ease with your own churn and chaos that gives you more availability more bandwidth for other people and you don't need to spout buddhist scripture at these folks it's just that they sense from you a kind of realness that allows you to work with them and help them without having to claim any religious cloak absolutely jarvis you talked earlier about anger Is that something you see coming up a lot in your mind in meditation, anger? And what is the anger about things that happen to you on the day-to-day or the fact that you're at San Quentin as somebody claiming innocence?
1: You you just hit it on the nose. It's being here where I don't belong. That's where a lot of my anger comes from. Now, how do I get rid of this anger? I think what I do... To get rid of it is just acknowledge that I have it. Not try to think that I don't have it. I do have it. And to just acknowledge it exists makes me look at it in a way where I can justify this stuff if I really wanted to. You know, this is me talking to myself, thinking to myself, I can justify this stuff if I really want to. I have righteous anger. I mean, I can get away we telling everybody that I'm angry and I'm pissed off and I don't give a damn and all these things. Because who can do all this time for nothing? But then I also feel on the other end of that, that's not being authentic because I'm not angry that way. and I don't need to be this way or that way. Oftentimes, I think of people being frustrated because they're on the freeway and the traffic is too long. And now they have to sit there for three hours. So that's the kind of anger I don't understand, you know, I don't understand that, but it's real for people who have to wait that long, you know, so just acknowledging that I do have this streak of anger, I do get angry, just knowing it feels right, but it doesn't feel like it's righteous, you know, and I don't know anybody who don't get angry, so it's not like there's a point where at some point in my life I'm never going to be angry, I'm never going to be frustrated I'm never going to have all these problems going on in and out of my head it occurs, it happens it's just acknowledging it and seeing what comes up when it does come up, always like looking at it after I get rid of it I like to look at it see where it could have went you know. and it's like one of those this could have went all bad, this could have went really really bad, you know And that's one of the stories I like to tell people when I'm writing people out there. It only takes two seconds for your whole life to be what you're living and being on death row. Two seconds, that's all it takes. So being angry can be really, really poison. But back to your question, I I just acknowledge it. You know, I just say, okay, this is what comes up for me about this right here. And just giving it, it's five minutes or ten minutes or an hour or two days, whatever. But it's not you it's not you. It'll dissolve. It'll get rid of itself. But that's the real anger that comes from me.
0: Are you optimistic that you'll be able to get out?
1: Out of prison? Yeah. I do. But I also know that I can't just stay on the fence waiting. What I have to do is live, exist, breathe, in the middle of both of those possibilities, I have to be in the center somewhere. I can't lean to the, yes, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. I have to find me being able to communicate both sides of this. And I give it to my Buddhist practice that I know how to do this, or it's a practice to do. You know, I, I think if I didn't have the Buddhism, i I'll, I'll go crazy waiting on this kind of stuff. But accepting the fact that both possibilities are likely to happen, one or the other, you have to start filling that out, you know, filling what comes up for me when if I lose and what comes up for me if I don't, you know. I have to develop a relationship with both of those possibilities, both of those outcomes. This call
2: and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
1: I know a lot of people say just focus on the positive, focus on the positive, focus on the positive. No, I can't focus on just the positive. I got to focus on what happens if I lose in a 9 by 4 sale after being here 42 years. And to be totally honest with you on this... And I say totally honest because it's not really totally understood by me. It's more of a feeling. Um, there's a certain degree of fear on both sides of this. The fear that actually getting out is, is terrorizing. The fear that I might lose my appeal is absolutely terrorizing. They both share the same emotion. They both share the same conclusion one way or the other when I think about getting out all kinds of stuff comes up for me you know like what's next after then you have no more aspirations to be free now you're out here now what you know and then the other end will I eventually be executed for something I didn't do and what is that going to look like who else could you have help you in the corner you have with the people you have That's going to be better than your lawyers now, you know, or your investigator now, your family now, you know. So I live with both of those very, very real feelings. And maybe in Buddhism, I don't know, says you're supposed to, you know, kind of like dissolve those feelings. Don't let it tear you up, find your center. Oh, hell no. I need to feel those fears. I need them. They are necessary because that's being real and true to me. And in a way, if you got both of them going at the same speed, you tend to sleep better. You tend to feel more relaxed because you, you, you're not going to be hoodwinked by one or the other. You know, you got them both in your sights and you got them both in your heart. And you got them both in your conversations with people, friends, family. And that's a good thing for me. There's no better person that I want to be than me. I wouldn't want to be no one else but me. And I say that because I just feel blessed in many, many ways. You know, I feel truly blessed by my life. And, you know, it's hard for me to say that because I know ain't nobody going to get that. Very few people would get that. I, I remember when I got covid and I was really, really sick. I went out to the hospital three or four times, the prison clinic three or four times. And then the last time I went to the prison hospital, he gave me a prescription of medication to take. And I said, okay, and I got the bottle. And I read all the things that it said, you know, if it says if you have headaches, if you got heart problems, if you got cramps, if you got surgery, drug- I mean, they just list the whole thing of, you know the uh, symptoms that you know you have to be careful of, from heart problems to asthma to all kinds of things. And I realized that everybody had to have these things for them to put that on the back of the bottle. And I didn't have none of those things. I didn't have heart problems. I didn't have liver problems. My sight was not impaired. And I started realizing, man, you know, there's a lot of people. And got these things, you know, and it was just one more indication to me that I have a lot to feel blessed by. There's so many things that I could feel good about. And I, it, it was one of those moments where I felt really, really sick, but at the same time, blessed. You have 60 seconds remaining. There's a lot, a lot worse scenarios in me. And I think someone asked me not long ago, what is the hardest thing, you know, being in prison? And my quick reaction was the fact that... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You know, I'm just glad that I'm not on death row for killing anybody. You have a prepaid call from... A Jarvis Masters. An inmate at the California State Prison, San
2: Quentin, San Quentin, California.
0: Coming up, Jarvis talks about his definition of freedom. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. Hello? Hi.
1: Hey.
0: Jarvis, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you about the concept of freedom and what that word means to you. Because there is this notion that we can find freedom in any circumstance. And you wrestle with this in your book. You worry that if you feel too free, then you'll stop fighting for freedom in a conventional sense Mm. to get out of prison. So how do you think of the word freedom?
1: That's a real good question. You know, we're talking about my appeal and what happens next and all that. I think I find my freedom realizing both outcomes, not being hooked by one or the other. Right now, today, my freedom is actually realizing that there are two outcomes, and I'm trying to make peace with both of them. And the more I'm able to do that, the more that I'm able to find my own freedom. And another way, taking what might happen with a decision tomorrow or next month or next year, just moving that to the side. What I believe is my way of thinking of freedom is that I'm able to give something back to people. You know, the more I give things back to people, the more I feel like I am moving the bars moving a cell, just moving a lot of stuff out the way. I'm just trying to move the bars out the way, move the cell out the way, not be able to just be so attached to these things, you know, just moving it out the way. And I think this is not just for me, but I think it's for a lot of people outside of prison. How we move our obstacles out the way. My teacher told me, he said, you know what, I can't put in his words, but... He says, don't try to dig a hole under the bar. Don't try to knock the bars down. Don't try to yell the bars to go away or whatever. Just move it out the way. Find a way to move it out the way, those obstacles. And the better I get at that, the more I experience my own freedom. To me, that's freedom. And I would say that for anybody outside the prison, too. I get a lot of mail. And there are people in these letters that have the perfect home. They have the beachfront, they have the Pacific Coast Highway, they have the two-door garage, and the whole get-out, you know. But they're miserable as hell. Having all these things does not guarantee you one second of your freedom. And that was an eye-opener for me, because for a while I thought just getting out of prison would be my definition of freedom. But, you know, it doesn't feel that way to me. If I got out tomorrow, I still have a lot of work to do. If I don't get out tomorrow, I still have a lot of work to do. I know I still have to meditate. I know I still have to do the things I do in order for me to experience my life. It's all about being able to move a lot of things, a lot of obstacles in my life out the way, and being able to walk through that, whether I'm going to a visit, Whether I'm writing a letter, whether I'm talking to my niece or someone, I'm just trying to get rid of the obstacles that keeps me bound up. And that's how I feel freedom.
0: Jarvis, let me just say that it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: Hey, man. Hey, thank you for the opportunity that you gave me to talk about my life and share some of my viewpoints on how do I make it through. Thank you so much. I hope that uh, this interview makes a difference in people's
0: lives. I think it will. And thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Jarvis J. Masters. Really quite extraordinary to be able to talk to him. As a reminder, if you want to learn more about Jarvis, his books, his practice, and his legal case, you can head over to freejarvis.org. We'll put a link in the show notes. Special thanks to Lee Lesser, who helped get Jarvis onto our radar And to Max Solomon at Hanger Studios, who helped us manage the many, many technical challenges of this unusual interview. I also want to send a special thanks to Corny Cole, who was instrumental in connecting us with Jarvis and who produced a whole podcast series about Jarvis called Dear Governor, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And we will also post a link here. Thank you again to Corny. Thanks as well to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, who was the lead producer on this episode, which was a a big lift. Thank you, DJ. Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio, and Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. We're gonna get weird and trip out with the great John Kabat-Zinn, the guy who came up with mindfulness-based stress reduction, in my opinion, a truly historical figure. He came on to talk about his new book about using meditation to manage your pain, but then we went off into lots of fascinating directions, so you'll hear that on Wednesday.
1: And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now, in hardcover or digital editions, wherever you get your books.
2: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition.